This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book Drugs and Jesus by Josh Lawson. It's no secret that churches are stumbling in the dark when they look for ways to effectively serve people who use drugs. As the death toll of accidental drug overdose continues to rise across our country at an alarming rate, Christians are struggling to connect their faith with this urgent and holy work. Faith-based activists are attempting to bridge the gap, but so far, their message has been confined to socially progressive circles. Drugs and Jesus is the first book of its kind to pioneer a theological framework for people of faith, and especially evangelical Christians, to help them engage in the ministry of harm reduction. Drawing from my own groundbreaking efforts to equip faith communities at the epicenter of America's rural opioid crisis, Drugs and Jesus takes readers on a journey of theological and practical transformation that will help them learn how to better serve the most vulnerable members of their community, all without having to become experts in the field of addiction or theology. Drugs and Jesus releases from Choir Publishing on April the 11th. Don't miss it. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, everyone, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are so delighted that you have decided to spend the next hour or so with your favorite heretics. Um, my name is Keith Giles. Uh, I am the author of the Jesus Un series of books on deconstruction and reconstruction of your faith, and also the recently released Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And we are kicking off, not kicking off, we are continuing. We're continuing our wildly popular series, What, what is the Bible? So uh, we're actually doing a, a part two because it was so exciting, had so much content, we couldn't cram it into the first, uh, the previous hour. So we're going to continue talking about um, this sort of the B-sides, the extra extra bonus stuff that they couldn't cram into the Bible that we want to talk about all that stuff. And um, I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Katie, Matthew, and December. Say Hello. Hey everyone, my name is Katie Valentine. I'm the creator of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook group where you can find out about all things woo-woo in your spiritual journey. And uh, But I also like to bring in my, my logic side brain. And so this is the kind of stuff that I just thrive on, talking about all stuff about the Bible and not quite about the Bible. So looking forward to it. Hello everybody, this is December Rose. I am the author of the book, The Church Can Go to Hell. And also, you know, this year friendly black friend um, in the community, hanging out, throwing some seasoning all over the place. So I thank you for listening. And I am also looking forward to getting beyond uh, the book called the Bible. And I am Matthew J. DiStefano, again here with you all folks today. I am I'm more often than sometimes Matt these days. Uh, December, it's nice to have you back. Did you did you collect all the data you were uh, you were out there looking for? I'm not going to give you any context to what we talked about on last episode and see if you can answer the question. You just want to know how your time was in Nevada. Yeah, yeah. How, how was it out there in the desert in Nevada, uh, finding that lost, lost text of the Bible? No, I did not find the lost scroll in Nevada anywhere. Uh, just oh. stand in between my toes and my cheeks. That's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, well, awesome. well, welcome, welcome back, and um, I am I'm happy to be here with you all again. Um, Katie, do you want to tell our lovely listeners where Shonda is this week? 
Well, she's not, you know, she's not scroll hunting. Uh, we are missing Shonda, but like right, right at this moment, she's in urgent care. And so we want to ask all listeners, even though you're listening to this far apart from the time when she's actually there, you know, send a little energy her way. Um, she asked for a little bit of sympathy and uh, we hope she gets well really, really soon so we can welcome her back in the next episode. See, yeah, I always can you, thought... Can you send energy back in time? Yes, yeah, of course. why not? All right. Because, not? because God, I, God is outside of space and time, see? And so... If somebody in the future prays from so, for someone in the past, the topic for a whole then that show. should still work because God, God knows everything. So God knows that they are, you are going to pray for her in the future. So he will apply that to her now. I think more it's that we know time doesn't exist in the quantum state. Like once mm. you get down to subatomic particles, That's weird right. shit happens with time. And so if you're, if we're sort of sincere in our energy and prayers, yeah, we can send it to like, all time and space. So my um, my super woo woo pondering about that is like one day the universe will be brought into full reconciliation because we'll um, have spent so much time healing through this quantum realm huh. that we'll all be in like harmony and peace and all that kind of stuff. Yay! Maybe maybe you Just already may take have. a couple of universes from now. But maybe we already have since since time yeah. is an illusion. It all exists somewhere. Just in a way, not it already right has. Here. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was is and shall be are you sure we didn't do smoke thoughts that's yes i we just shonda yes. thank you for illuminating our stone thoughts unintentionally December. Yeah, yeah. December. there you go well it sounded like that, we did stone thoughts yeah i <laughs> we guess did a little bit close enough right yeah that that might that might be enough for uh, for that, this episode that, that, that counts for today yeah yes. yeah but but first we have something right we have uh as always a lovely guest right Yes, we we have a tell me we have a guest. Oh, we yes, do. I've just forgotten who it is, so I'm struggling in my intro. Um, he's been okay. Here's a clue. He he's been here before. He, he's a returning heretic. We don't have a lot of those. Um, is this the second time he's been, or maybe it's not the third time? This is second. actually the first time that he's been here for the third time. It's the first as time, Jamal, he's been as here. Jamal used to say. As Jamal would say, it's the very first time he's been here for the third time. All right. So, with that <laughs> lovely introduction, everyone, we do have a great heretic of the week. I actually was present uh, for this heretical interview. I'm just really sleepy because I got up at 3 a.m. Um, so, we have a wonderful heretic of the week. Um, you're going to love him. It's the third time he's been here. I think the only person of that distinction. I believe so. Right. So, we expect this to so. just blow up. So, everyone, share away and enjoy this interview. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hey, I'm Bradley Jersak, and I am still a heretic. <laughs> so they say. Hi, uh, uh, Brad. Brad. Yeah. Well, hey, welcome back, and congratulations for being the first Heretic of the Week to ever hit, what do you know, is this thir- three or four? That you returned here. This Three. is my third. Thank you so much for having me back, despite all that. Right. How does yeah, the I triple crown I... feel? Yes. Oh, it feels great. It feels great. <laughs> is it heavy? Is the weight of responsibility too much? The main the main thing is it covers my thinning hair, so we're all happy about that. <laughs> oh man. Well, Brad, it is uh as always uh an honor and a blessing to talk with you. And um so we're not going to ask our typical question. We've already asked you this twice. Well, you know, why would someone call you heretic? But, um, uh, but, but you know, it's been a while since you were here. I think it was like 2019, pre-pandemic. We looked it up before we hit record. So uh, we, we, our minds will be refreshed. 
Um, so what have you been doing since then? How, how have you, um, or have you grown and changed, uh, since that time and, and where are you at now? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, like when, when the pandemic officially started and I would call officially when my flights were immediately canceled, um, Mm -hmm. we canceled, I, I, I immediately canceled 33 flights that would have carried me through the rest of the year. Uh, which is an alarming amount for March to December. Yeah. And then I, I said to my wife, okay, like how much money do we have? Because <laughs> yeah. I've lost overnight, I lost 40% of my income. And so wow. she she gave me an amount and I said, okay, well, let me know when that runs out. And we'll have to figure something out. So six months later, I said, so how much of the money's left? And she gave me a figure that was $1,000 higher than the first figure. Then I'm like, well, then what the hell was I traveling so much for? I, I, I literally had 20 years of jet lag accumulated. And so one of the big changes in my life is, is that we, we recognize the need to, to, uh, for a significant lifestyle change. So, you know, if I was doing 40 flights a year or more uh, total, then uh, now our goal is six. And because I still have trouble saying no, if it's an enticing event, then maybe, maybe eight trips. So, um, and, and one th- other thing to say about that then is for a lot of us, um, I, I know there was significant hardship and I don't want to belittle that yeah. at all. Um, for me though, it was an important reset in terms of my way of being. And so it, what it got me thinking was, what are the things that I had to let go of temporarily that I should be letting go of permanently? And then also I began some new practices and I thought, which, which of these new temporary practices should also become permanent practices. And so uh, that includes like taking walks around the bird sanctuary and spending time on my deck, feeding crows and things that, People of privilege get time to do, but um, and how all this affected my character. I can socialize quite well. I can work a room, all of that, but I'm actually an introvert. So for me, the hermit life was wonderful, and coming out of that is annoying. And <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's one big change. I'll also say another uh, another shift and and this is more in practice but you know working out what interfaith relationships look look like. I'm being just sucked into that right now and I've been having wonderful conversations with Jewish rabbis and uh, Muslim imams and I've just finished reading the entire nine, well, 90 hours of audiobook of the Sikh scriptures, because that's a third of my city are Sikhs, and I know nothing, right? And I've just finished that, and I, I, I have some new ways of seeing other faiths, I think, in terms of I'm still, a, I'm, I'm still sort of, I'm a perennialist in this sense, that I think, you know, we have religious bedrooms, and, but I'm not a couch surfer. But I can visit my cousin's house and stay overnight and experience what's wonderful for them. And I can see the light of Christ and hear the light of Christ in, in what they're up to and in ways that I probably didn't in 2019. So that's a that's a growing edge for me and working out what it means to still have a 
uh, a Jesus following identity while deeply appreciating the light I see in, in my um, Jewish Muslim and Sikh friends. And that we'll see who else, right? But I'm trying to make that not a program. I'm just trying to say what relationships are growing. Keith, I know you know Safi Kaska. So. Oh, I love Safi. He contacted me and he said, we've been asked to, he says, I've been asked to talk to a university in Pakistan via Zoom and he, and um, it's Muslim and Christian instructors at the only liberal arts university in Pakistan that has wow. a religious studies department. And he says, wow. but Jesus said, you must do this two by two. And so I won't do it unless you do it with me. And so I got, oh, wow. I got, that's what's happening. I just, by invitation, I'm experiencing these wild, amazing people. I didn't know they could do this in Pakistan. So what fun. Anyway, that's, that's a summary of my last three years. Uh, that's awesome. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I'm actually fascinated by the Sikh thing because uh, I like you, I know nothing about it, but I'm really curious about it. And I'm, uh, I'm sure there's a lot we can learn from other faiths like that, you know. But just by listening to people who aren't like us um, and finding some finding some common ground, maybe in some surprising ways. I'm, so I'm just curious about that. I, I know this is not what we came to talk about, but since you brought it up, yeah, um, what kind of things have you seen or, or learned, like in listening to the Sikh scriptures? Yeah. So, I mean, probably, you know, people are people. So you're going to get quite a range of flavors yeah. of Sikh, right? But I, I initially got interested because of Valerie Carr and K-A-U-R and her book, See No Stranger. And she is an active Sikh who has come to appreciate her faith, but also has learned how to express it in terms of a love revolution that sounds more like the Sermon on the Mount than anything I've seen in years. Wow. And she's been invited to speak in a lot of, um, you know, black churches, and and uh, she's just wonderful. And and so you can, if you go look up Valerie Carr and see no stranger, it's a real perspective changer. So then I got I got I got to reading the Sikh scriptures, and they're they're like enormous. It's two thousand pages, yeah. and. <laughs> It's it's mostly I would say ninety percent of it is worship songs in the style of of um, Song of Solomon, and it's talking about that our souls are like a bride to God, and there's a lot of stuff that seems to be a critique of re religious ritual and so on. So this is funny because you would I go to a Sikh temple in town and. I hear them singing and chanting in another language. And I thought, well, this is their religion. But what they're singing and chanting are stuff from their gurus that's like this. Um, it doesn't matter how much fasting and how many rites and rituals you do. That's not what's going to save you. It's one glance of his grace will wash all your sins away. And I'm like, what? This is what? like, what? and <laughs> over and over and over. It's so incredible. And um so I'm I'm really appreciating that, but I also know that just because that's in their scriptures, I don't know what their practice is. But I I did get to um, I I talked to a I was buying an iPhone cover from a Sikh guy, and he had you know he had a turban on it. So I after after I got my cover, I, I said, uh, you know, I've been reading your scriptures, and I'm wondering like, is there anything in English at your temple? Is he like, no, not really. 
And then he said, so, so what are you learning from the Sikh scriptures? And I just started telling him stuff about like, your soul is a bride and one glance of his grace washes our sins away. And it's not about the rituals. It's about turning with devotion and love towards the one who loves you. And he goes, oh, you're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> it was so beautiful. We had a real connection, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. So thanks for asking. It's important to me, you know. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the the importance of interfaith and what, what the value is in that for you. Because I know so many Christians feel compelled not to enter into interfaith dialogue, but to convert. And when we enter yeah. into interfaith dialogue, we my experience is we have to leave that expectation at the door or, or you get rid of it altogether. So I'm kind of curious, what's that What's that been like for you? Was that a journey? Is that something you would have done in the past? Like what what brought that about now? I think in some ways, you know, I was challenged to it by our friend Safi Kaskas. He is a he is a, a Muslim scholar who has translated the Quran, but he when he connected with me, it was about this connection. And he said a few things that were very helpful. I'm going to blend what he would say and what I inferred. <laughs> so I won't blame him all for this. But he said there's a kind of pluralism that tries to water down all faith into almost nothing as if. Jesus Christ is cosmetic to Christianity and Muhammad is cosmetic to Islam. It's like, and that that's sort of, and that while we all just love each other and that's the real point, he goes, that that's very dishonoring. You could never say that to a Muslim, you know, that's ridiculous. But he says, um, I mentioned the perennial tradition. He says, but if you come to it as a Christian, with permission to be a Christian and and you let me be a Muslim. And then we look for connections and we yeah. look for relationship and our trust can grow. Then um, the, the points, instead of looking for ammo against each other, we can mm -hmm. look for points in common. And then he led the way. He said, for example, no good Muslim can ignore Jesus Christ. Right. We need to know what he said and we need to obey him. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, this is the Quran. And yep. so him and I team teach now on the Beatitudes at the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice. And I thought, well, if he can do that, if he can read my scriptures and he can find points of connection that make him a good peacemaker, then maybe I can do the same thing. And so when I speak at these interfaith things, we're very encouraged to like, no, we want to know what you have to say as a Christian. So I'm less inclined to identify with that in those contexts. And he's like, no, you mustn't. We, we, you know, we're not going to be able to be bridge builders if you just tear your side down. He goes, why do Christians do that? And I'm like, well, because we're embarrassed, I think, because of how we've misused faith. And yeah. Uh, excluded the other so yeah i i think uh your point um translates over to like uh the buddhist and christian conversation because i i see a lot of people saying oh i i dabbled in buddhism and really jesus and the buddha were the same and it's like no like even in marcus borg's book where he you know uses the parallel sayings he introduces it like hey i'm i'm still a christian there are definitely huge differences jesus had his religious and cultural context and the buddha's was much different um and so what you said where it's like no approach both as either a buddhist or a christian or, or even neither but not to say like oh i'm just kind of like 
oh, it's the same thing, so it doesn't matter. That cheapens what each are. Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, we might be tempted to do that from our end, but then you can see how offensive it is if you try to do that to their end and just say, you know, Muhammad doesn't really matter to Muslims, and they're like, what are you talking about? Well, then the conversation actually is over. Right. It's not not interfaith at that point, and so. Yeah, that's it, it's just a, a fascinating part of really my uh, my journey, and I I think it's because of my high Christology. I, I have this idea that you know you've you've got people who talk about you know John fourteen six as an exclusivist text. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Right. No one comes to the Father but by me. But there was a scholar named um, Kutzinger, and he's he, Orthodox, and he said, "Look at um, for a Christian." Who is the one talking in John 14, 6? It is the one who said, before Abraham was, I am. And if you think the I am is nowhere to be found before the first century <laughs> or nowhere to be found outside the Christian faith, that's a very narrow, small, and actually heretical view of, of Christ. And so I'm, my eyes are getting bigger. It's not he's getting bigger. My eyes are getting bigger. And... Um, and it's real connection, Katie, like you were asking about that. What it's been, it's been, it's been about relationships and it ultimately this Jewish rabbi, oh, oh man, you should track her down. Lynn Gottlieb. She's in Albuquerque. She's been a rabbi for 50 years. She is among the first 10 female rabbis in history. And cool. she, she's hardcore activist. Like um, she, she said after the Holocaust, there was this slogan around with Jews and um, never again, but, it, but her mentors said never again for anybody. And so yeah. she became an advocate for um, Palestinians and wow. for blacks and for uh, indigenous people and for uh, who else? I mean, the LGBTQ community. I mean, she's just remarkable. So she became a rabbi when I was seven years old. <laughs> this is talk about seasoned, right? And um, yeah, and so so she she really sees along these same lines. And it was Safi introduced us, you know. And so here's a Jew and a Muslim, and it's like yeah. unbelievable. It sounds like it sounds like a like a joke, like it's a Jew, a Muslim, and an Orthodox. <laughs> yeah, I, totally. We go to a pub. That's the main thing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I am. Um, I I love that, and I I think that every Christian should read the Old Testament and the New Testament with a Jewish friend by their side because it makes such a difference. Like what I mm -hmm. see in the Scripture through my Jewish colleagues' eyes makes such an impact on the way I see it. And it helps us see when we're anti-Jewish in our interpretations, when Christians are, because we are like 90% of the time. We, we talk about the God of yeah. the Old Testament and how the New Testament corrected the Old Testament, just all this stuff. And uh, so I find that really helpful. And interfaith conversations have been really impactful on my, uh, my journey. Um, so I love that you're doing that. Yeah. One thing she mentioned too yesterday is even like, you know, I can't say much about in opposition to Zionism, to Christian Zionism, without being called a anti-Semitic, right. but she's saying as a rabbi, there are a lot of anti-Zionist Jews, and they regard the roots of of Zion as Christian white Christian nationalism. Yeah, yeah, and they're very very pro whatever American policy in 
Israel, but do they actually like Jews? So it turns out to be the same people who are Christian Zionists can be very anti-Semitic. And that's how she sees it. I'm like, wow, okay, uh, <laughs> this yeah. changes everything if you see it that way. And she's like, well, then it's time to start seeing it that way. Like, yeah. So yeah, I was trying to bring about the second temple, right? Or the third temple, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and usher in the end through instigating yeah, Armageddon, all of that They're stuff. They're all just, yeah, it seems like the whole Jewish community or the whole Jewish population for Christian white nationalists is props. That's, yes. that's I mean, they, it, they're not saved anyway. Like they, yeah. they do go to hell in that eschatology too. So it's like, well, I can see nothing more than them being used as political and theological props. Yeah. yeah. She she was joking about that. She said she'll meet Christians that ask her, well, are you a Finnish Jew? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. no, I'm a Swedish Jew. No, it's a, a Finnish Jew. And so that was interesting because then I also don't want to lose myself in it and say, well, you know, I do hold to a particular a particular Jewish rabbi's reading of, of this stuff and and not to not to de-Judaize Jesus in, in, and yet to understand simultaneously how um, he's bigger than all of that, you know? So. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so this is fascinating. I really like this uh, idea of finding new ways and, you know, um, seeing through other people's eyes or just shifting our perspective to look at something kind of familiar, but in a, with new way, you know, new ways of seeing those things and, and the value of that, which I think is so beautiful. And, um, and I know you have a new book out, um, which is a little bit about that, at least about what happens when you do that, because, uh, people end up going through a process of thinking and rethinking. Uh, sometimes we call it deconstruction. Uh, I know not everyone likes that word. We use different words for that, um, for that process, but, um, I'm just curious about, this new book that you have out and um, you know, how, well, I, I guess the main thing is sort of like, why did you feel like you needed to write this book? Um, why was it important to you and what can people expect uh, to find in this new book? Okay. Well, thanks for asking. So I, so first of all, of course, yeah, I, I get a little twitch in my eye when I hear the word deconstruction, but then again, it made it into my subtitle. So the book is called out of the embers <laughs> Um, out of the embers, faith after the great deconstruction, and and what I'm saying is that it's a great deconstruction in that this is a this has become a movement now, and it's a terribly big umbrella actually for a yeah. lot of experiences, and so I'll I I would I would distill the range of experiences into a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, it would be the experience of, of deconstruction as a liberation from very limited and limiting views of God, um, oppressive kind of way. Um, and so let's say I grew up with, with the assumption about eternal conscious torment of, of the damned. And so to, to let go of that feels like a massive liberation. And it also feels like not a move away from God, but actually towards a, a, a truer vision of who God is. On the other end of the spectrum, um, I, I perceive uh, a lot of deconstruction has been accompanied by trauma. Some of it's in response to trauma, like spiritual abuse, for example. Mm -hmm. And it will involve an exodus out of that. But that exodus can be into alienation. 
where they lose their community, they may lose their family, they lose that sense of rootedness, and suddenly um, folks are losing more than they bargained for. So it's like, I get a lot of messages like this, like, well, I just, I meant to leave church, not Jesus. Okay, I've left Jesus. Okay, I've left God. Well, <laughs> now I've even lost meaning. Yes. And, and, and so I, I get messages like from psych wards, from ex-pastors. Yeah. They're like, I don't even have, and it's a, the analogy I use is like my mom went through a mastectomy and we knew there was a cancer that had to go, but she didn't know or volunteer for how much of herself she was going to lose. Yeah. And for, for those who experience um, deconstruction as, as trauma, then I, I see two really um, different responses that have not been helpful. So one is the hand-wringing pastors who think if I can just usher them back into our pews, they'll be fine. Or, you know, they've just backslidden and we've just got to renew their faith. That's just not helpful. It doubles down on the problem. Um, the other side of that is I, I know people want to be encouragers, but there's a kind of toxic positivity in the deconstructionist movement at times where it's like, yes, just go for it. This is all wonderful. Follow your heart. And they're like, I did follow my heart right out of my marriage. Yeah. I've lost my kids. I've lost my family. I've lost everything. I'm completely bereft. And so then for someone to be a cheerleader in that sounds like someone who's like, they're a spotter as you're doing a bench press, but they're like, this isn't a bench press. This is a steamroller. Uh -huh. I'm so what do we do? Uh, and I think instead of either of those two kind of responses, what if we start with empathy mm. and just walk with people? And, and, and so that's the first part of my book. I talk about my story in terms of a memoir, both of liberation from toxic um, theologies in my view, and then, but then also my own meltdown where I didn't know if I could trust God anymore for the first time in my life. And, and I really, really experienced harmful. Um, uh, well, I experienced harm and I caused harm in that process. And, and then, and the regrets for that are their own kind of harm. But then where I go in the book, as I say, like, let, let's, let's ask the experts, you know, this is a very trendy word right now. I, we have other words for it, but let's go with that. Deconstruction is a very trendy word, but we should have some guides. So I go back all the way to, you know, Moses melting down the golden calf is an act of deconstruction. The early church fathers who talked about negative theology, what God is not, that was, they are experts. Voltaire in the Enlightenment, um, beloved frenemies like him and Nietzsche, they could see something as darkness and they call it that, you know, um, and, and their critique is scathing, but um, we need more help than that. So I, you know, look at Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and Simone Weil. These people are devastating to Christendom, but mm. what they're doing is they're, they're tearing something down. That's a hindrance to knowing the divine. Right. It's not about getting rid of God. It's about getting rid of these idols that masqueraded as God. And that's what I think people want and need these days. But it's good to have these mentors. And then the last section of the book, um, I'm saying, okay, let, let's look at Christianity, for example, in America right now. 
has completely self-destructed. I'm overstating it for a moment. I'll come back to that. But then the question is, it, um, Jesus asked this question, If when I show up again, is there even going to be faith in the world? And if we were to look at what I think of as American Christianity, for example, I don't worry about this in Canada. We're a pagan nation. <laughs> but in, in America, you You're know. socialists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in America, it's like, whatever Christianity is, it has a really bad reputation and, and, and it probably irretrievable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to, I'll just, um, so I, in, in the last part of my book is like, then what can we find? If we stir the embers, is there anything down there? And like, is there an authentic faith? So one example is uh, Lisa Harper. She's a really important black activist in America. Oh, she yeah. actually says this, if you've walked away from the church because of white Christian national nationalism without investigating black faith, that's still an act of white Christian nationalism. Ooh, I'm like, whoa, yeah. ouch, oh, right? <laughs> yeah. So she, so she just, my heart just tightened up when she said that. Cause I'm like, that's exactly right. So, uh, my friend Felicia Morell helped me do a chapter on like, you know what? Um, faith is alive and well in aspects of, of the, the black voice. Yep. Um, another chapter is like faith. We see the faith of the martyrs, these great female martyrs who would die with their arms outstretched in the shape of a cross. What is it that they had found worth dying for? Um something they had that they weren't willing to walk away from must be different than what we had. Um, and then, and then I talk just about how my godfather, I, I have this Gandalf like guy I talk to once a week and he's in, and he talks about the kingdom of God is presence in communion. And it's a, it's that it's much bigger than, than, um, a religious identity. It's about wherever I have encounters of grace with the other. That's the kingdom of God. So let's say with Safi Kaskas, right? This, this Muslim, we have an encounter of grace. And let's say I'm off Facebook for a few days and he, he texts me and it's like, are you okay? We've been praying for you. Wow. Okay. That's an encounter of grace. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's something. Um, and, and, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I, I experience Jesus in that he makes me a better Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, if I, I don't feel good about the label Christian anymore, but if I think I have a weird sense that church is bigger than Christian church, yeah. isn't an organized subset of the Christian movement. Oh yeah, Church is the expanse of everywhere that we encounter grace. And um, yeah. I'm still working that out. Yeah. I perhaps think, through man, all time as well. Mm -hmm. oh yeah. yeah yeah absolutely oh, yeah. yeah i love that because i mean i i think what you just said right there brad was so beautiful and profound and i i think that's something that that's always been my hope for people who are going through deconstruction so you know they're, what they're deconstructing is a systematic thing it's a theology system it's a denomination maybe it's a building that they attend you know that they a place where they go and sometimes when they deconstruct they think that because if they think that is christianity yeah. then they think that they're left with nothing. And so I, I think by reminding people that no, uh, the kingdom of God and the, and, and the gospel and, and ecclesia church, right. It's not defined by those, any of those things. It's defined by this 
human interaction one-to-one in community with another person. And, and in those ways, you experience Christ. In those ways, you experience the kingdom. In those ways, you experience this ecclesia. And so it's something more tangible and experiential um, than I think people imagine. And, and, and by bringing, I think, their attention back to that is like, oh, there's hope here. I haven't really, I, I, I haven't really lost those things. Um, I may have lost, you know, the structures. I may have lost some of the, that theology or some, even that denominational way of, uh, you know, gathering or whatever, but the potential is I have, but I've never really lost that, the, the opportunity to have that experience of Christ with another person in relationship. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, that's, oh man, that's so exactly right. It, how you've said it, I wrote down tangible and experiential. Yeah. And um, there's one there's one example in the book where, you know, I, I talk about Simone Weil a lot. And this guy contacted me who, who was, a, he's ex-military and, um, and he's also autistic. And, and he said um, that, I was the first person he'd ever heard who had referred to, to Simone Weil as being on the spectrum. And he said, this was profound. Like I was the first scholar he'd ever heard. He said, you need to know there's a whole community of autistic people out there for whom a touchy feely abstracted Jesus means nothing. He's married. And he says, if my wife says, I love you, that means absolutely nothing to me. And I don't, I can't even, I don't, I, I can't ingest that in any way. So if someone says God loves you or Jesus loves you, that's right. worthless, right? Yeah. But he said for autistic people, if it's tangible and experiential, yes. There, if there's a, um, so when we talk about the experience of God, I really, I really want to broaden that, you know, to, well, what would that look like for different people, right? And for him, it's about, his black and white thinking leads him to justice work. Yeah. And empathy might be super, super hard, but that's where he was able to experience empathy um, at the cross when he realized, oh, I'm the centurion standing there as Jesus is crucified with blood on my spear. And he can name the countries where there's, blood on his hands and and he can grieve over that and suddenly he's having an experience of god who wow. forgives him and none of that works if it's not tangible and experiential for for him i'm like well that okay then let's because that's my sense is that a lot of people who have walked away never had a tangible experiential understanding they 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 did have it they just didn't see it that's right how can we facilitate that yeah. Brad, what, what you're saying is so important. I work uh, for the last five years. I've been working with clients uh, in social services with autistic folks. And just, you know, I, I, I've been working with a lot of people in, in different, you know, life situations, going back to kids in foster care and group homes and in, in my social work that I've done. And it's just, I think, seeing all these different people and the way their brains work differently. Neurodivergent is a term that we hear a lot. Um, it really helps to remind that, yes, these things we say about God, even if we say God or as father or mother, which could have a very negative effect on someone, depending on your upbringing, um, depending on your situation, that 
if we start seeing how we can like communicate these things to people who think differently than us. And I think that's where a lot of the good, the good stuff is. Yeah. Literally think differently, right? Yeah. Not well, just think right. about different things, but right. like Met- metanoia. Yeah. 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 So I, um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, out of the embers of the de- great deconstruction something would else would emerge but I will shift metaphors then to, to make a point. And so what, what if this metamorphosis of faith, well, there's one right there, we're, is not the end game. We're not meant to stay in the cocoon mm. or better, um, that this is a birth canal and we don't want to get stuck in the birth canal. Um, this is going somewhere. Well, where is it going? And should that just be random? Or can we midwife people um, and rem- remind them to breathe and know when to push? And that's what Valerie Carr does a little bit too. She says, what if this darkness is a womb, not a tomb? You know, I'm... and she's talking about the broader darkness around, you know, all of the awful stuff that's happening in the world right now. But I would say there's a darkness to deconstruction that is not a problem. It's just not the end. You know, it's the the dark night of the soul, as John of the Cross would call it, is is unto something. But you also don't, you don't rush it. You don't belittle people for going through that. You don't, you try to deal with the traumatic elements. And I guess my heart is to see people go from where they're experiencing alienation, that they would come back to some kind of communion. Yeah. Um, in a very broad sense. I'm also um, enamored, I think, with the title, because I know Matt and I both were so close to the campfire, the really devastating um, fire in California. And so this out of the embers, what does come when things are are ashes and that there can be new life from that? It's different. It's not exactly the same and we can't expect it to be the same. So um, I'm really loving your title. And I know our listeners are going to want to run and grab the book. What is, where's the best place for them to um to buy the the new book? Probably you could the best place to go, I hate to say it, you know, but Amazon. Um, <laughs> um, one one aspect of that is Amazon has actually helped authors like me come out from under the 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 oppression of uh, of uh, of the publishing world. Yeah. Um where we were only getting 6% of the, you know, <laughs> um, now this is with a wonderful publisher, Whittercoast. They, so what's going on right now is, is my friend Boyd Barrett. He's a voice actor. He's narrating the book too. And he, even when he's doing these other people I'm citing, he's doing accents and everything. So oh, wow. if, if, if you want hardcover or an ebook or an audio book, that, that is the a central place to find it. Awesome. Awesome. So great. Well, so, so great, Brad. I think, um, I mean, you know, I, I'm a huge fan. Love you. Uh, I've really enjoyed how all the different opportunities I've had to interact with you over the years. Um, and so, so, so grateful that you've written a book like this because I think, um, it's so important to recognize this number one deconstruction is this, it is a, it is a thing. I, I think it's a spiritual movement. I think that the Holy spirit is, is behind it. Uh, refining and, and uh, helping people go through this transformation process. 
but people do need help. I mean, and, and some people get through it alone, sort of, you know, I mean, uh, mm. my wife, my wife was there for me, thank God. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of people reach a place where, as you've already enumerated, I mean, uh, it, can, it can divide people from their support systems, their family, their friends, their church, their spouse, um, their children, you know, and I've talked to people that have that exact experience. And just knowing that you took the time to acknowledge all that, write a book about it, try to help people uh, survive it, come out the other side with something that looks like hope and direction. Um, thank you for that. I think that's really, it's really necessary and, uh, very grateful for, for your voice and for this new book. Thanks Keith. Hey Matt, I saw you, we were on Amazon together. What was your, what's yours called? The bonfire? Uh, It's a collection of, um, a collection of conversations called the bonfire sessions. So I thought it was a cute. Um, yeah, you guys were like yeah. side by side there almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Brad was ahead, so I mean a little <laughs> jealous, a little magnetic jealousy, but that's a little you, magnetic. Okay. You have to get the screenshot for the second that it's there, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Grab it. yeah, before it plummets down. To, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, Brian Zond wrote the foreword, and in in some ways, it's a response to him a little bit. His book was called "When Everything's on Fire." Yeah, that's know, right. So. <laughs> Well, fire is yeah. always a good analogy for it's so many It's a good things. analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Brad. Thanks Thank so much. you. Appreciate you having me. Love you, Brad. Come back anytime. Yeah. Anytime. No, that was really cool. It was really cool to get to meet him. Um, no, he's like, three's enough. All right. Three's yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do, he just needs to write a little more, and then we can keep on welcoming him back. But, but if he comes back four times, he gets a free T-shirt. So, you know, you punch the card, you get a free shirt. If he comes back Maybe he'll get days. pillow or coffee mug status. Mm. We got a few pillows to send as well. I don't even have one of those pillows. I need to order one of those pillows. Those pillows. I, are, I was going to say, I need that coffee mug in my life. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, everyone does. This is the thing. P- people, if you haven't checked checked out the Heretic Happy Hour store, we have so many awesome T-shirts and and pillows. My gosh, these pillows are flipping hilarious. You got to go check them out. Where can they find them, Keith? I believe it's at heretichappyhour.com slash store. Or if you just go to heretichappyhour.com, there's a store link at the top. So And that ahead. is part of the site that is up to date. So it does, it does work. Yes. It's the part of the site that still works, even though the site <laughs> itself has not been updated since April of last year or something. Yeah. Those of you who turn the podcast off before we, you know, get to this stuff at the very end, I also feel like I should remind you, you can buy stuff, take a picture, and then put it in Heresy After Hours, which is our beautiful. Facebook group. That would be amazing. Yeah. So just everyone, so you know. Please yeah. do that. That would be awesome. And please start listening to the whole episode. Get all the way to the song at the end, damn it. Yeah. There, <laughs> we say so funny stuff as the credits roll out. That's yeah. right. You miss, don't miss it. Generally. So we are here again for B-Sides. We're going to run it back like we promised two weeks ago in the last episode. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to. December didn't get to her her scroll in Nevada. We didn't get to our scrolls here on the podcast, but we are going to talk some more Gnostic texts. We're going to go outside of that. We're going to talk about Enoch. We're going to talk about a whole stuff, a whole bunch of stuff that isn't in most of your Bibles. And we're going to get a little more granular so, Katie, do you want to kick us off? Sure, yeah. So, like we said, last time we talked about these non-canonical apocryphal texts, and we didn't have time to get into any kind of one specifically. So we thought we'd talk a little bit uh, a little bit about three of them today. 
One is uh, First Enoch. The second one is, and that's kind of Old Testament Apocrypha. And then the other two are New Testament, probably like second century. And they're both gospels, the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Judas, which is um, kind of tantalizing. So what should be our first entry point? What's, what's the sexiest thing to talk about here? Well, well, the sexiest thing is Mary Magdalene, but let's save that. I, maybe let's start with Enoch, because Enoch is such a foundational thing, and it had such a powerful influence on many of the other writers of the texts, right? For a lot of early yeah. fathers, uh, and even Jewish leaders. I mean, they, they well, considered it's quoted in the Bible, right? Yeah, it's exactly. That's what I'm saying. Bible. Yeah, it, it actually yeah. was, it influenced quotations that are in, uh, that are in the Bible that we yeah. currently have. Um, and so it'd be interesting, interesting to talk about why, like, the, to me, that's the most curious thing about it. Like, it, because the Book of Enoch, it really had such a prominent place in the lives of many Jewish and Christian believers, uh, and was quoted even in the Bible and all that stuff. Why didn't it end up in the Bible? Like, it, it seems like, what, 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 I mean, what happened there? Because it, it, it had such a powerful influence, and then it didn't make it. So, well, it, anyway. it does. It does in the. It does in the Coptic Church, though. In yeah, my... the Ethiopic Church. It's. It's. I think they're the only church. The Ethiopic, the Ethiopic, and the um, Eritrean churches. Orthodox okay. churches, mm-hmm. it's part of their canon, but like, I don't know any, I don't know why it doesn't make the cut uh, for the others. But the the process of canonization for the Old Testament is also a little less clear yeah. than the process of canonization for the New Testament. And so there's like more murkiness there um, as well. And so if you've, if you've never read First Enoch, it it is a trip. Uh, it's, it's fun to read. And you can read, you can read, by the way, everyone, you can read all of these um, at two websites where they're collected, uh, earlyjewishwritings.com and then earlychristianwritings.com. They have pretty good translations of all of these and free resources. Oh, cool. As so well. Let, yeah. So let's start off with who, who the heck is Enoch and why should we read his book? Like, so, um, so what's it about? You know, who's Enoch and what's he? My book was for every, for everyone, listeners, who is Enoch? Where do you, where do you find Enoch? Yes. And so um, this is hearkening back to our vacation and Bible scripture memorization uh, skills. But in case you've forgotten, in case you've repressed all of that, um, Enoch is the great grandfather of Noah uh, in the book of Genesis. And so like, um, I think it's Methuselah, then Enoch, then Lamech, then Noah, or maybe vice versa. Um, And so Enoch, though, in the Bible never dies. God takes Enoch directly to heaven. And so it's this, he's this very um, kind of tantalizing figure. So what happened is that in right before the time of Jesus, in, those, in the century, century or two before Jesus and a little bit after, there were a lot of Jewish writings that, would, that were named and purported to have been written by Old Testament figures. So someone like Enoch, who never dies, makes the perfect candidate to be the supposed author of this book. And so it's like Enoch serves as the guide um, and the narrator for this volume that we now call First Enoch. But the actual Enoch of the Bible did not write this. Um, This is a point of confusion for a lot of people. And I have a lot of people in my Facebook group who um, kind of, and I I understand why, but they kind of operate under the assumption that some historical Enoch wrote Enoch, but that's kind of not the case. Right. And we have a lot of these, we have like the Testament of Abraham, we have the apocalypse of Adam. So you take a sexy old Testament figure, attribute a writing to them that you in fact have written. 
Um, so yeah, so First Enoch is huge. There's like five different sections to it. The section that's the most interesting to most people is the story of the Watchers. And so First Enoch tells the story about um, the angels that rebel against God and how they fall and how they um, become parents of the Nephilim, also in Genesis, in Genesis 6, who are also these weird, mysterious, kind of half angelic, half demonic, half giant figures. And they they give rise to a lot of speculation. They, they get it on with human women, right? They, have they do. Human women. And yeah, that's, that's, yes. the, that's the <laughs> mythology. Yeah. Yes, that's the mythology. And so first Enoch takes this little, this little kind of um, story about Enoch, the story about the Nephilim and writes a whole like 40 chapters about it. Like a fan fiction. It's fan fiction. Yeah, it really it's, is. It's epic. And it's trying to answer a question. How did this all come to be? Right. It is filling in the gaps. I mean, I think that's what a lot of these books try to do is sort of like people, people had questions about some things and, and then someone goes, well, I'll write a story about it. And so, um, by the way, this is really weird. If you haven't seen it, um, one of my favorite directors is Darren Aronofsky. He's made some amazing films. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of, he just did the whale. He directed the whale, by the way. So that's who I'm talking about. Um, but he also did Requiem for a Dream and Pie and some other films and Mother is another one that he did that was really great. Um, the fountain. Oh my gosh. The fountain's incredible. Um, and out of all the films he directed, the worst film he ever directed is called Noah. And it's oh. all about this. It's all about that. So everything you just said is in Noah. So if you're just curious about that, there, someone did make a movie about Noah and Methuselah and Enoch and those, Wait, and the, and the, the fallen angels. Noah? What? Who stars as it's, Noah? It's someone um, big. Oh, yeah, someone it's, famous. What's his name? The guy that was gladiator. Uh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe Russell Crow yeah. is, is, it's it's a it's an interesting film. I watched it just out of curiosity because I do like that director, and it's it's interesting, but I it's really dumb <laughs> in a lot of ways too. But it helps when you understand it's not the story of Noah. It really is it's the, the story, story of Enoch. It's, he only pulls in a lot of Enoch into the story. So yeah. Anyway, if you want to see that on uh, if you see that dramatized, yeah. If you totally want to curious thing, now. You know, yeah, they're making a Gladiator too. Just FYI. Just I know. I heard that. Yes, the, the sequel. No one else. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious to know. Um, I know there's plenty of reasons why um, certain books were and were not included in the canonized Bible as we have it and hold it today. Um, but I'm a little bit curious if it had anything to do um, with its origin or where people thought it came from. I'm reading some things that say that uh, it had it had a different language than the other ones. Uh, I don't know. Have you read that? The yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, the Hebrew Bible uh, sort of, I mean, the name kind of gives it away, but like the Old Testament in general, like the, the early Jews wanted those writings to be in Hebrew. So some of the, some of the reason things like first Maccabees or some of those other writings that we call the, the Apocrypha aren't in there is probably because they were written in Greek. Mm. Oh, interesting. So we, yeah. so we think that's the reason why Jewish um, authorities, whoever that, whoever those people were, that's why they wouldn't want to have included it. Yeah, they would begin to exclude those because the Greek was seen as the language for Christianity. But but they were and widely they, read. So that's the thing. Yeah, they it's were like, widely read. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody everybody was about. reading them and talking about them and maybe even incorporating some of those ideas into their theology, even though those books weren't officially recognized. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not Definitely. That and that's like Jude quotes Enoch. Oh, what was that, December? I thought it was interesting that... That you know, there's a couple of books that are quoted in the Bible but not included in the Bible, and I wonder what the thought process was to keep, uh, you know, 
in my mind, I, I, I want to be thinking, what was the conversation around keeping books that quoted books that they would not include in the book? Does that make sense <laughs> to anybody? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. should we nope. keep that? Because it says it refers to the book of such and such. What if somebody asks us about that book and why? You know, I don't know. In my mm-hmm. mind, I'm thinking about what was that? What did how they negotiate? Um, what they were going to keep and what they were not and what they would allow reference to. And I wonder if they removed any references to other books that they thought were more a little more offensive or just outright, you know, they didn't want people to know about or anything. You know, it makes me wonder if yeah. they if they omitted some things that, that may was, have referenced some truly, of the other books. Yeah, if it was truly omitted, we would s- probably see the record of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in just in the scripts that we have in the in the different manuscripts that we have not I mean that's not foolproof but we would probably be able to detect that yeah. um, if it happened later you know if it happened like in the second yeah. third century if it happened early maybe not because we just don't have some of those manuscripts I think yeah. I think I, I was thinking about that too December on a similar thought like and I, I think it only becomes really problematic in like a really modern or postmodern view of the Bible, when we when we elevate scripture to such a high place, then yeah, the question is like, how does that work? If if the Bible, the 66 book canon is the literal word of God, inerrant, infallible word of God, and Jude quotes from thing from a book that we say isn't isn't above the bar to be included in that, how does that work? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's when it's problematic. And but I think like Jesus even retells some stories or spins yes. some stories that are already around. That's right. And and, and so it's like he obviously right. knows tales from outside of his own culture, just like he knows tales from right. inside his own culture. And then, mm-hmm. but they're all kind of doing, they're all riffing off each other in that world where they're taking one story and they're spinning it a certain way to make it fit whatever their point is. Right. And I mm-hmm. think, I think that's when it, it, but it only, again, it only becomes really problematic, I think, in the, kind of Protestant notion of the Bible is the word of God. You're right. <laughs> Inerrant, infallible, without error, the guidebook for our life, blah, blah, blah. In that vein, it being the word of God, the word God breathed, the, you know, right. all that good stuff. That's inspired. Yeah, that, I'm wondering I'm, if, if, if this is inspired, you know, I guess the book of Enoch is considered non-inspired or whatever the case, but I'm wondering if, if the inspired word quotes a non-inspired word how, how you know how you know that stuff ain't inspired either you, you know what i'm saying right. so it just makes yeah. me think right. you know so this part was inspired all of this was inspired by god but it mentions this other stuff so is, yeah. is it either is it all or nothing or is it just it's what we say it is that's what it is just it's what we say yeah <laughs> i think i think it's like what matt was saying i think um if you start with what you're describing december as the if if your if your default position is the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, then in your imagination, what you're thinking is that God is the one going dictating this, and, yeah. and God is the one who who told these stories. God is the one who had these ideas first. Um, then yeah, then then you you don't have room. It, it would shake that view to find out that even going back to Genesis, that the Old Testament scriptures are taking stories fr- from around. They're the people, the Sumerians and the Mesopotamians and all these other people around them. They already had these stories. They had very similar stories that that's where, so they were, that's where the Bible kind of started. It started by remixing. We're talking about remixing 
it started by remixing other stories from other cultures and just putting their spin on it to talk about what our God is like this, or our heroes did this, and they would use similar stories, they would modify them. So that's kind of like the entire Bible. You know, it starts it starts in the in the um, in the Torah, and it goes through all the all the major and minor prophets, and it goes through um, Jesus, like. Like Matt was saying, Jesus, like when Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we found like, I think eight or nine different, maybe more than that, but eight or nine different uh, retellings of that same story before Jesus. So Jesus just took the story they all knew and put a spin on it, right? Um, Paul quotes uh, from Greek uh, prophets, uh, not prophets, I guess, Greek uh, poets in the book of Acts, right? When he's talking to the guys in, in Athens and stuff. So all the way through, I mean, I think once you realize that, and if you can accept that, and a lot of Christians don't like that, they don't, it really shakes them up to hear that, that the Bible that they have is, is sort of a retelling of other stories from other cultures around the time. Even looking at the Bible itself, we see that same process within the Bible. Like, yeah. So Chronicles retells That's right. the, you know, earlier, early hist earlier histories found in the Old Testament, and they're not identical. They, no. he, the Chronicles sanitizes them a lot. And I don't hear any Christians quoting from Chronicles because, oh my gosh, it's boring. It's not nearly as interesting as the original. Yeah. Um, they, they, they take all the fun stuff out, but then Jesus does the same thing. We, you know, in our sermon on the Mount series way back when we talked about that too, like Jesus says, well, this is the law that you've heard and now I'm reinterpreting it. Yep. And so we see this continuous kind of evolution, and that is a deliberate choice of word. We see this deliberate ev this evolution even within scripture, much less without, you know, out, outside of scripture as well. So, you know, that's why I think this the series is really, really great, because hopefully we're helping people to see some of this stuff that, you know, you're not going to hear this from the pulpit, uh, typically, depending on what yeah. church you're at. Yeah, no, I don't hear first not being preached on too often. Oh, just these details about Sadly, the Bible and yes. how, how it's put together and, the, uh, you know, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think that's, it's really helpful, I think, to get a better picture of this. And then by talking about these books that, that didn't make it in, it allows us to kind of reflect on how, yes, how different they are, but in some ways how similar they are. And in the, in the case of, um, Enoch, you know, what I run across, uh, my, my circles tend to really like the book of Enoch. Uh, people in my Facebook group will um, refer to it a lot. People have a lot of questions about it. But it's interesting because if we approach these books with the same methodology of, you know, is it true? Is it not true? Is it inspired? Is it not inspired? Those are all good questions. But if we use that same methodology, we never get very good answers around that. So a lot of people in my, you know, my circles want to take Enoch literally as the, as quote unquote, the gospel truth about angels, um, where I think it's more helpful to kind of go up another 10,000 feet and say, why was this being written, right? Well, one answer to that, it was written to fill in this gap um, that we see in Genesis. And someone had a spun a really kind of fun story about it. And maybe it was answering some questions that they had in that time period too. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not really sure why you wouldn't take like Noah literally, but you're going to take Enoch literally. That makes <laughs> right, no sense to me. <laughs> Well, I think a lot of people will take them both literally. No, just, no, yeah, oh, right? Yeah. That that would make sense. That would at least be consistent. Yeah. yeah. Well, at least yeah, it it's I mean, it's just it's the default way of reading. Yeah. It's a default way of reading, yeah. right? And so like people in my crowd have have questions about angels and Enoch answers those questions. Is it default as such or is it default in our current culture or a or our current yeah, like I don't know 
I mean, maybe clarify that. And then we can move on to Judas because yeah. I know we got two more books to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to get get caught. Yeah. Well, I mean, just my kind of my two cents. I'm I'm falling back to um the the old Marcus Borg book, the reading reading the Bible again for the first oh, time. I love that book. Yeah. yeah, it's really, really good, really helpful. And in the first couple of chapters, he talks about how like sort of a lot of Christians grow up as soft literalists. They don't really realize they're literalists. If you ask them, they wouldn't say that. But then they'll say like, oh, well, when Jesus did this or when Paul did this or when Jeremiah did this. And so they just sort of assume that the Bible is historically true. Mm, right. Yeah. It's just sort of yeah. a soft understanding. You don't, you're not sitting there questioning sure. it. You're not preaching about it. You're just sort of softly assuming that that's the case. Sure. I mean, like in a, you know, the United States, I think we do that with like George Washington and the cherry tree oh, for like white Americans. It, that's you a great sort of analogy. Because that that that's that true. Is, Yes. Yeah. But it's only when you start to dig dig underneath the cover, you're like, oh, George Washington was, um, you know, there's some problems. George Washington probably did tell a lie or two, I think. He probably did tell a lie or two. Like he was. was Man, I don't even remember that story. So maybe that's good that I don't even remember the story of the the cherry tree. I know know the cherry tree. I have heard the the foolery of George Washington. And I mean, anyway, I know we got to move on, but I have to I have to drop something in here that I came across that's very interesting. I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints have a whole bunch of things that they believe that nobody else does. But one of the interesting things that they do have is this Book of Moses that has a whole that has Enoch as a whole. He's this whole guy. He's a prophet, and he talked to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ. Uh, told him to go tell people to repent and like it, they got him in here is like almost like the apostles and i think that's so interesting i'm like reading this story and i'm like like he's a whole different person yeah and enoch is a is a fairly common mormon name mm. yeah i was yeah. like this is the whole well. thing so anyway i just thought that was interesting apparently um mr smith you know he also wrote some inspired god breathed scriptures <laughs> maybe maybe he did read first enoch first so you know i don't know maybe he was so. on the desert he was tripping on peyote yeah who real. knows yeah talk about remixing yeah he did a lot of remixing yeah that is a remix <laughs> it's a, a big remix yes absolutely so yeah let's All let's right. make sure let's go ahead and um and transition into uh our our two more modern um Everyone, the, the the person everyone loves to hate, right? Judas. Judas. So is it the same is... Judas? Can we just like start off with that? Is it supposedly the same Judas? Yeah, right? it's supposed oh, to yeah. be, but obviously it was written like obviously, well, right? I mean, Judas died. I'm pretty sure he didn't write something down before well, he died. Well, so, no, I know, but kind of how uh, they would say, "Well, this is the gospel." It's maybe supposed just, to be, yeah, right, or yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about it, so I, I'm hoping. Katie or Matt or I see a lot of notes here, and I'm assuming I didn't write. (laughs) I'm I'm assuming those are yeah, not mine. Maybe maybe Um, they are inspired and infallible. They could have been God breathed. It's just I want to just say real quick what what I find fascinating about the Gospel of Judas is that uh, it's an example of the kinds of things that could still be out there that we haven't found yet, Um, because it was found fairly recently, and and the process of how it was found and translated to me is really fascinating. but I mean, it's just a matter of time, you know, like you never know. Someone's going to be digging somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in Egypt or Palestine or something. And they're going to like kick over a jar or go into a cave and someone's going to go, oh my gosh, look at these texts. And they're going to f- discover who knows what, um, because some of these things have been found. We didn't even know uh, in some of these cases, I think Judas 
doesn't Irene, I think Irenaeus mentions a gospel of Judas or a text of Judas and sort of refutes it, but we don't know it's the same one because um, there's so many out there. But anyway, and then you know later on we find some of these things. So uh, I think that's really fascinating to know that there's still more out there that we we could discover one day. Yeah, definitely. And um, just one little, I just forgot to throw this in, but I wanted to mention it. Um, just kicking it back to First Enoch for a second. Oh, yeah. uh, fragments of Enoch are also finding in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. And we talked about that in the last episode. So oh, I'm yeah, sure yeah. for listeners to the last episode. Um, but that's another way that we can date transcriptions. Yeah. So like First Enoch is found there. So obviously the people living in Qumran considered it to be sacred writing. Right, right, right. right. They, they considered it to be the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the Gospel of Judas, it is super fascinating and it highlights a lot of problems with the antiquities market. Um, there's a lot of uh, shady goings on with, with antiquities markets, especially with manuscripts, especially with religious manuscripts. Um, so this gospel kind of surfaced in the 1970s in Egypt previously unknown. Uh, it was in the antiquities market and like, we don't exactly know what happened or I don't exactly know what happened. It's not been public, but it was purchased by uh, Frida. Um, I don't know how to say this part of her last name, Tacos uh, Newsberger on April 3rd, 2000. And she did the responsible thing with it. Once she purchased it, she um, got it restored and she, she brought in a team of scholars or gave it to someone who had a team of scholars who uh, restored and translated it. And so this was published in, in National Geographic of all places yeah, in 2006. So I know. Yes. Yeah. The English translation <laughs> was published in National. It was good. I remember reading it at the time. So I remember when this came out, I was, um, maybe my second, year i think of my phd program so it was fun i was like oh my gosh my my work was suddenly relevant for a short amount of time between the gospel of judas and mel gibson i had like things to talk about at churches <laughs> for, for a few weeks there um so you know it was exciting I, do you all do you all remember when this first kind of i, became I published? do yeah. yeah so i was living in orange county at the time and i think chapman university which is right there in orange there was a there was a professor there who I don't know if he was part of the translation team or something. He's I, he had something connected to it anyway. Um, he did a big lecture there at Chapman University about it right after it came out. Um, and so, yeah, I remember it being a big splash. And even locally, you know, people were talking about it and doing seminars and people were showing up to find out more of what is this gospel of Judas and what is it all about? Um, so, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Matt December, any salient memories of the gospel of Jesus? No, I, I, got, I got nothing. December. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This this isn't a where were you moment for you. Okay. No, no. no. sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it is interesting because like the, I'm just looking at some notes. It says that um, it was radiocarbon dated to the late second century, right? So that's pretty. Well, maybe Judas didn't die, and he lived like 200 years. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, there you go. The Jesus, the, the swoon theory for Jesus on the cross. And then like, maybe there's another theory for Judas. He, you know, he didn't really die. He just, yeah, maybe he was like died. Enoch. Like Enoch. Exactly. Right. He got and taken up. And, uh, so, and so what's, what's in this, what's in this uh, wacky thing here? We've got it is so wacky. It is so wacky. So it's super Gnostic. And we talked a little bit about that uh, last time. So 
listeners, or refer you back to the previous episode to learn more about Gnosticism. But uh, it's probably a Gnostic-ish, a Gnostic-inspired, Gnostic-affiliated uh, kind of gospel. Uh, it's a fun little gospel. And so Jesus is teaching all of the disciples, and the other 12 just misunderstand every single thing that he says. So it was kind of like the Gospel of Mark. They just can't get like a thing that he says, right? The only one who truly understands Jesus' like secret message is Judas. And so it kind of presents Judas as they really is the hero of the story. Um, and, and the way the other gospels will present Mary Magdalene as the, as the shero of the story. She's the only one who can understand. In the gospel of Judas, it's Judas who understands. And so here's one, one quote that I found, and this was written in uh, Coptic, I do believe. Yes. Um, so I can't I read so it. Too. I can only read it in translation. Uh, but so in the English translation, uh, Jesus said, come and I'll teach you about the mysteries that no human will ever see. There exists great, uh, a great and boundless realm who, uh, whose horizons no angelic generation has ever seen, in which there's a great invisible spirit in which no angelic eye has ever seen. No heart has ever comprehended and it's never been called by any name. And so Jesus and Judas will go and have these kind of conversations. So um, it, it kind of presents Judas as like getting like, I believe that it's like through Jesus' death, um, if Judas initiates that, it's actually getting like the message out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so super, super wacky to us. Yeah, Jesus and Judas were basically in collusion together. And Jesus was like, hey, Judas, come here. Okay, here's what we're going to do, right? You're going to help me out here. Um, so he wasn't really the villain. He was secretly doing exactly what he and Jesus had had figured out, you know, planned out in advance. Well, I, I got to say, like, from a Girardian perspective, I see Judas as like, I don't I mean, we all we all paint him as like the bad guy. But that's kind of how the scapegoat always is. Like he's yeah. painted as this terrible, terrible person who oh, is really the reason why Jesus. I mean, he turned him in for what, 30 pieces of silver. Yeah. And then he goes out. Right. And it depends on the account. Right. He either hangs himself or what's well, the other and, way? And the, or fell off a or, cliff and his. Well, that right. was burst open. Yeah. I mean, it, that that's just that's just too too on point for like what happens to a scapegoat. They mm. get blamed for all the problems. He's the villain. Yep. Doesn't mean he's innocent, but doesn't mean he's guilty of everything. And then he gets to be the fall guy. Mm -hmm. And it it reminds me of uh, the Old Testament that process of the scapegoat. I, it's been a minute since I've read all that and studied all that. I studied it for a sermon once, but it's been a long time. Um, but apparently they get, they go get this goat or whatever it is, and they kind of symbolically lay the sins of the people on it and then send it out into the wilderness. Is that right? Somebody who's mm -hmm. read yeah, there's, yeah. yeah, there's yeah. two goats. Yeah. There's, there's, there's two, two goats. goats. Like, well, literally the origin of Scope But the one that carries the sins is the one that's released and set free and runs out into the wilderness. He, and then yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of that. And I, I, if we, um, I, I'm not in any ways, I don't think Gnostic. <laughs> I, I need to even really understand really what that means. But if if we go from what Christians generally believe, which is that God is all knowing, all powerful, all seeing, right? If we're going from, if that's the foundation that we're going from, then Judas would almost certainly have to be part of the plan. He couldn't been this. Uh, yeah. One way or the other, he'd have had to been part of the plan as in chosen. You know, if you go from what, what Christians believe uh, their foundation of their faith is concerning God, God don't make mistakes. God knows everything advanced. God is, uh, is eternal. He's in the future. He's in the present. He's in the past. So Judas 
was on assignment. He had to have been on assignment. It was not an accident. <laughs> he right. didn't wake up one day and, and it was some random thought that he had, you know. So I don't, you know, I have not read the book of Judas, but if we're going by what most Christians believe about God himself, then apparently Judas was part of the plan. Yeah. So exactly like, you know, go back to, um, you know, Exodus, you know, God couldn't have done what he had done without Pharaoh, right? He needed Pharaoh to be the one there to resist and say no and uh, to, to to enslave them and not and refuse to let them go so that God could show his power. And so, yeah, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of things like that where the, the, the character that you typically assign, like, well, this is the bad guy. Yeah, but without the bad guy, you can't have the story, right? Even even the idea hero. of Satan. Yeah, even the idea of Satan, right? You, you in a way, in, in certain you know Christian theologies, you need a Satan character, um, so that right, God, Jesus, God, or Jesus can be the hero and overcome the evil, the great evil. And the scriptures even say, as it pertains to the Pharaoh, that God says, "I have hardened Pharaoh's heart." In other words, need this to happen. I did this. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> he didn't wake up one day and just decide I'm going to be an asshole. Like he, God, he said, not he probably was anyways, you know. But it, the scriptures say I have hardened his heart, so that yeah. basically I could show y'all. I need to show y'all what I'm about. Y'all must not know about me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I hardened yeah. his heart so you could see how how I roll. I'm about to roll these plagues out. I'm about to divide the sea. I'm about to perform these miracles. Y'all, y'all, y'all heard, you know, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, y'all heard, but you about to have your own testimony. You know what I'm saying? So when you think about that, okay, maybe God also hardened Judas. Who who knows? Who knows? Or maybe um, because we do believe what we believe about God in general, Maybe someone wrote the book of Judas to just make it make sense. The more I'm thinking about this, the more we talk about it, about the book of Enoch, the book of, it, it seems like it's like, we just need to make it make sense. Yeah. 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 It's a, I think it's the Judas is answering a question that obviously, I don't know if it's obvious, but in my mind, at least some people were asking like, kind of like what December, like December, what you just said, did he really do like the worst thing in the world? Mm-hmm. Or does Jesus' death free us to seek this new knowledge? Um, yeah, does mm-hmm. does Jesus does Jesus' death free his spirit so that we can all receive this special, you know, this kind of special secret knowledge, these spiritual truths? Um, I'm kind of curious if the ancient people had the same assumptions that we do. Like what, you know, December, what you said is, is kind of our assumption, right? That God is all knowing, God is omnipotent, but you know, we have all these examples of the, in the Bible, even where God changes God's mind. Right. Yes. Like with oh, in the conversation with Abraham, you know, so I don't know that the ancient people had the same assumption that yeah, we and do. Then, yeah. And in the old Testament too, you have God repenting of something. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, if you, if you know everything in advance, well, what do you mean? You would have known in advance that you were going to regret that you did it. Right. Or, or God asks questions of people like, like he doesn't know the answers. You're like, where, where are you, Adam? Like things like that. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of examples in the, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures that God is way more um, human, I guess, in some ways than the, we've, we've elevated it to the point, a lot of us to the, where God can't ask questions. God can't, there can't be something God doesn't know. Um, right. This is why like open theism is kind of making, making a comeback in some mm-hmm. of those ways. Cause it's like, yeah, maybe God doesn't know everything. Maybe, maybe things aren't uh, all worked out that way. Interestingly, I think 
the Gnostic texts and especially the Gospel of Judas sort of present Jesus as knowing like everything. <laughs> you know, so it's like full circle, right? So like maybe maybe the Gnostic assumption was, you know, like kind of like December has um, illuminated, right? Our, our common assumptions are too. But what Jesus is, the, the knowledge of everything, and you see this in the Gospel of John too, is really about spiritual matters. Yes. Mm-hmm. And about like the creation of, of the universe, um, about spiritual truths, not about necessarily events. But like in the Gospel of John, we see it so much that in the death story, in the crucifixion story, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, it is finished. And then he breathes his last. Yes. Like he has such knowledge about the moment that he's about to die, that he declares yeah. it to be so, then dies, and then his spirit goes on up into heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. So the other, the other thing, right, um, about the Gospel of Judas is that um, it also presents a, a kind of an alternate version of creation and a God, uh, which is, this is a similar theme throughout a lot of um, those non-canonical quote unquote gospels. Um, The idea that the God that created the universe is not the God, not the ultimate pure good God, not the God, not the father of Jesus. Um, That that God was sort of, I think, I think in the gospel of Judas, they kind of refer to that God as like a, he's crazy or he's like, uh, he's a fool. Like so, he's a god, and that god created earth and people, but he's not the creator. And that um, the real god, the real creator, created that guy. Um, and then Jesus comes to basically tell us the truth, right? That though the god that created you is not the true god, um, this is who the real god is, right? And it also gives us a lot of, like you were saying about Enoch, different. Uh, it talks about angels a lot too, right? It gives us a different, yeah. more background on, on the sort of angelic lore, which people like, are Yeah, like by. every fourth word in the Gospel of Judas when I was rereading it was angel. Uh-huh. Like, And so what, one, one of the things we see in some flavors of Gnosticism, and I'm not, uh, I don't know the details of this, but you see just like, just like you were saying, Keith, you see the um, kind of the good God and the bad God and the all these different levels of, of deities and, and angels too, and just spiritual beings, but it gets really complex. I mean, like some of these Gnostic texts, I mean, there's like the urge and the demi urge and the demi demi urge and the demi demi angel. And I mean, they, I mean, they, they must've had flow charts like written on their house walls to keep up with this. (laughs) It it gets so complicated um, uh, as well. And you, you see a little bit of that same kind of thought process in like Zoroastrianism and ancient Zoroastrianism on through yeah. today. And the other, uh, kind of the other little interesting historical tidbit, and I, I think we could probably draw a, a curvy line, if not a direct line between ancient Gnostics and like some medieval groups like the Cathars. The Cathars in Southern France were a Gnostic group who oh. were Christian, but they saw Jesus more as spirit. Um, they, they had the secret knowledge that they passed on to one another and they, they were pretty much wiped out. Um, I want to say like 13th century, 13th century or so. So the, the book, uh, the historical fiction book Labyrinth by Kate Moss is a nice exploration of the Cathars. And there was a movie, um, and the movie has the youngest daughter from Downton Abbey in it. So it's worth looking at. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Right on. So, um, yeah. All right. So in our last, uh, 10 minutes or so here before we sign off for yet another fantastic episode of the Heretic Happy Hour. As promised, let's talk about the gospel of Mary. And this is Mary Magdalene, right? There's a lot of Marys. Everyone's named Mary back then. It's a popular name. Just want to clarify. Yeah, I would, it, we were recording this just after Easter. And uh, in the Easter service I went to, I was just rereading the 
resurrection story in the gospel of Matthew. And I was like, there really were so many Marys. They were just like Mary Magdalene and the other one. And the other Mary. The other one. I think there were too many. They couldn't specify which one. The other one. What it was. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so the gospel of Mary, we think is about Mary Magdalene, but it never actually says Magdalene. Uh, well, maybe it's the other though, one. He could because there are missing maybe. chunks. There are whole chunks that's missing. True. So it might, you know, if that's we could true. find it. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. One day, I hope we do find a complete copy of the Gospel of Mary because I, I, man, it, all the juicy parts are missing. But I, I love the Gospel of Mary. You can read the whole thing. I think if you printed it out with front on, fit, on, fit on the front and back page of it, like an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, it's pretty short. Uh, yeah, it's pretty short. It's pretty kind of, it's, 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 you can read, you can read the whole story, but it is, it does have a lot of fragments. And yeah. when we have those little missing pieces, they're called lacuna. So it does yeah. have a lot of lacuna in it. Um, and mostly these were written on front and back. So if something's missing on the front. It's missing, missing on the back. The back. It's, a double... it's a bummer. Yeah. Bummer. So what's um, the juiciness? What, let's assume this is Mary Magdalene. Yeah. What's this all about? Yeah, so um, just like it's, it's also a Gnostic text, it was discovered in 1896. It's also written in Coptic, um, so it's also one I can't read um, as is. Uh, but well, it no, is. Can I, can I say real quick? Yeah. It's you said discovered in 1896. There was a yeah. portion discovered. That's the first time we discovered it. But then yeah. the, the larger was discovered in what 1940. When, when was Nagamati? It was, it was 1945, 46, 45, something like that. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, no, no, it's good. Um, but the, uh, so the Gospel of Mary is also, it, instead of featuring Judas prominently, it features Mary Magdalene prominently as the disciple who gets Jesus, as the disciple who has um, all the spiritual insight into into Jesus' teachings. And it has Jesus giving her a lot of special attention and a lot of favor. And it shows the other disciples, the male disciples, getting like pissed off. That, um, especially Peter. Especially Peter. Yeah. Some of the, okay, some so of this the one's probably students. true then. This yeah, right. <laughs> so it's definitely picking up on those like early Christian conflicts, you know, like who's got the true understanding of Jesus message. And I think we can, um, there's probably more camps than this, but the ones that come down to us are like Peter, Paul, Mary Magdalene and James. Pe Peter, Paul and Mary. Yeah. Peter, yeah, yeah, Peter, Paul, Mary and James, some, and maybe sometimes James uh, as well as having like kind of the authentic version of what jesus was teaching so mary the gospel of mary is all about mary magdalene having uh having winning, winning that race yeah and it suggests i think right that um because we do see in this text and the gospel of philip and some of the other texts that we have as well as some of the you know traditional stories um that those sort of like that there were those these there were kind of camps there were there were probably people that were like more Pauline, people that were more Peter, or people that, and, and potentially people that were more like Mary focused. Because it's it does seem, it, I just personally find it really fascinating um, that you have this sort of like, it seems like there are these factions, right? Um, and that Pete, there's a tension between Peter and Mary, um, we're assuming Mary Magdalene. Um, and, um, and that's, Born out also in the Gospel of Philip, um, and, and really amazingly, uh, like very recently, Elizabeth Schrader, um, a great scholar, um, she discovered something. She, to your point, December, she discovered in the Gospel of John, the oldest copy we have of the Gospel of John, um, by looking at the text that there were um, insertions and additions and things erased, literally erased, um, that affected Mary Magdalene, and so. 
there does seem to be some good evidence that this tension, this these factions between Peter and Mary were real. They're based on, there was really something going on there. There were people trying to downgrade and erase Mary. And there were people on the side of Peter going like, oh, no, no, don't listen to Mary. Um, and so that, that to me is really fascinating. And, and it makes me, to me, it makes me even more curious about the, the gospel of Mary because I want to know what was in it and what, what was it really all about? Yeah. Would it help to have just a, a quote or two from, uh, from one of the translations? From Jamal? No. Yeah. Where is he? <laughs> well, remember I did channel Mary Magdalene, you know, that's true. You like did. a year and a half ago. Um, my gosh, I was sweating through for that episode. It made me so nervous. I had to do a fake French accent. How do you think I felt? <laughs> oh, so can I can I can I just verify? So you guys were asking if if Gospel Mary was in Nagamati, and um, perhaps it was not. Yeah, I think that it's not. Um, okay, but it, my, my bad. I apologize. No, no, no. That's okay because not what Nagamati. What a lot of the Nagamati Nasit texts do is kind of verify that this is not a gospel in isolation. Right, like they they verify that Mary Magdalene um, was just as prominent, was just as badass as we're saying that she was, right? And so that's I I thought it was too in my head, and I just uh, did a little a little reminder Google search because um, in my head it was just like part of the Nakamati text, uh, and we have found a Greek like some Greek fragments of the Gospel of Mary. So we have it in Coptic, we have some of it in Greek, and so you kind of have to like piece all these together in these kind of creative ways. Um, but yeah, like, so one of the quotes I think may, will probably illuminate more than, than us just talking about it. Um, let's say this. Uh, so when Mary had said these things, she turned their heart toward the good and they began to debate about the words of the savior. Peter said to Mary, sister, we know that the savior loved you more than all the other women. Tell us the words of the savior. You remember the things which you know that we don't because we haven't heard them. Mary responded, I will teach what is hidden from you. And she began to speak these words to them. The soul replied, what binds me has been slain and what surrounds me has been destroyed. My desire has been brought to an end and ignorance died. And it goes on a lot further. Yeah. But there's a little example about some of the... Um, it's really great. But tension but that the, we see. But the part that you read, I was reading along. Uh, the part that you were reading, um, there is talking about those lacuna. There's mm -hmm. a place where she oh, starts and she says, the savior answered and said, so she's telling you what Jesus, there's like, tell us what Jesus told you. Okay. Here's what Jesus said to me. Uh, he said, he does not see through the soul nor through the spirit, but the mind that is between the two, that is, that is what he sees the vision. And it is. And then right there, thing. yeah, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. There's a, there's a huge so missing thing. And actually that, that's what they call chap, the end of what's missing from chapter five and then it doesn't pick up again until chapter eight. So like we are missing a lot of it. This is what I'm hoping we're going to find that missing chunk the missing seems to pieces. be the best part. Um, it's funny that they give it like they estimate how long the chapters would be and then make yeah. it chapter eight, even though we don't yeah, have we chapters. Don't, we don't know. We have no way of knowing. That's right. Um, but I mean, you can tell just by how much is missing, I guess. Um, but, you know, I have to say that's like the most Gnostic thing ever. Right. The 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 secret part of the actual teaching maybe is the part that's missing. Would it be funny if but, that that is what the wow was written? That it actually the guy just the first person wrote it put and it is and then just, he skipped down. <laughs> he just numbered it page five and then he jumped to page eleven. Let's mess with it. the future readers of this. Yeah, completely. <laughs> um, 
so I this is this is one of my favorite parts in the Gospel of Mary. Um, just a little bit further down, uh, Peter responded, bringing up similar concerns. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he then speak with a woman in private without our knowing about it? Guess. Are we to turn and listen to her? Did he choose her over us? So I mean, it's putting very point blank some of the concerns of some early Christian communities, you know, the second century, and com- like some conflicts going on between men and women there. But doesn't that yeah. seem to be about true? Like if, if Jesus, just like what we think we can know about Jesus, that would be so up his alley, right? To just be like, all right, I'm going to show these dudes who think that they can only know me because they're dudes. I'm going to give it to a woman and see how they respond to that. Right. And that's consistent with what we see Jesus doing. He does. He allows, he allows Mary and the Mary and Martha story to sit at his feet, just like the men are doing, which is the posture of a disciple. And he says, what she's chosen will not be taken from her. He on purpose goes and speaks to a woman, in, a Samaritan woman at the well, when not a man, right? So he's always doing that. And again, it's the sexist part of it, right? This is the patriarchal stuff coming through that I could believe Peter was, was exactly like this. When he says, like, the part you just read, Katie, did he really speak privately with a woman? No, he wasn't like, doing that's that. The, right? That's the little dig. It's like, would Jesus really talked privately in private to a woman as if like, Oh, she's not worthy of anything. It may, it, there's probably some of the element of worthiness for sure in there, but I think it's also like that could be scandalous. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. What was, what was Two really unmarried going people, on? Adults speaking with each other in private. Like that. Doesn't Jesus know the Billy Graham rule? Come on. Doesn't he what? <laughs> Doesn't he know the Billy Graham rule? Oh, the- What's the Mike Pence rule? You can't, you, might, you can't be alone with a woman like an elevator. Never be alone with a woman. Never, never. Yes. You didn't know that. that that's makes the sense. Mike. That's Mike Pence's rule too. Like, what kind of lack of self control? It's assuming that women that are are looking to dis, to seduce you, right? The Jezebel that's going to try to bring down the man of the the godly man. You know, it, it's and yeah, it's all built into this gossip bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, where where the Gospels that we have, I mean, I think Jesus is affirming of women in the Gospels and does empower uh, empower women in the Gospels, but the Gnostic, the canonical Gospels, but the Gnostic Gospels do it better. Um, we still see veneers of patri- patriarchy, even um, in Jesus' actions in the canonical Gospels. And like the, even Keith, the example you gave of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, she didn't say anything. Right. She didn't say anything. And so... What I do like about some of these Gnostic Gospels is they, like Mary, is the main character and she she gets a lot of um, speech quotes. Are we going back to that like kind of underlying literalist? I mean, did she not say anything or did the writer, did she not say anything for the writer who was probably a man to be like, oh, that yeah. was important enough to take note of? It's not. It's not saying something. It's not really saying anything, I don't think. Or it's saying something, but not everything about the historical Jesus. But it is saying something yeah. about the vision of the Jesus. And, okay. Yeah, the yeah. portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of yeah. Luke, or the portrait of sure. Mary in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but I think it's also kind of the counter argument to, and, and I teach this right, so I'm I wrestle with this um, of Jesus always empowering women, but there's times when he didn't. Well, like, I don't to think the extent like, that we would a, like. Right, with the crumbs and the dog. I don't, that one's not so good in Jesus' right, favor, right? right. Yeah. Even the, even the yeah. dogs get crumbs. Yeah, right? yeah. The um, you're reminding me you're talking about how how the some of those Gnostic texts treat women. Um, if, we haven't even mentioned this one, but this is just a bonus. There's there's one called um, the Thunder Perfect Mind, which what a great title, Thunder 
perfect mind. Um, but it's it's a wonderful. Uh, the whole thing is told first person from the sort of a feminine divine or divine feminine voice. And it says things like, uh, for I am the first and the last. I am the honored one. I am the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the mother and the daughter. I am the members of my mother. I am the barren one. And many are her sons. And it just oh, kind of goes cool. from there. It's really beautiful. It's so great. And so it's like this void, this God-like voice speaking, but it's from the beginning it's completely identifying with that feminine. It's really powerful and beautiful. So yeah, I, I really appreciate a lot of those texts for that reason, like gospel of truth. The way it describes God is in some of the most beautiful language I've ever heard in my life. And so I'm really glad we've discovered these and we can translate them, read them now, because they're really amazing. I have a question that maybe Katie can answer. Is the gospel of Mary, the text itself, considered to be as old or is it dated close to the other texts that were? Uh, I don't know about radiocarbon dating. Um, I'm sure someone has done that. I just don't know that, know that off the top of my head. But when we, uh, when we date ancient texts, we can somewhat through radiocarbon, we can do that, but we also do it through handwriting and, and content. Um, and so we, this one is a second, the gospel of Mary is most likely a second century um, text. And I'm not an expert at all in handwriting. Like I couldn't tell you, but, um, there's like trends that change in the way that letters are written and how words are spaced. So that's one way that we can, we kind of tell. That sounds tedious. Hmm. So does it fall in line? Yeah, it does sound tedious. So with that being said, does it fall in line with, uh, with the new Testament era or it doesn't? It's it after, it's second century. After. Yeah. 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 Second century, not first. So it's not, yeah, it's no, there's no eyewitnesses here who are writing down the gospel of Mary. Yeah. So it's, it's fan fiction in the same way that yeah, everything else we've been talking about today is. And I have a question too, and I'm, I'm learning as I go. Are there any other, you know, like with Enoch, there is a reference, there's like a, a little crumb in the Bible, like a little trail to this other book. Is there anything, any such thing with the, with the book of Mary? Is there some little crumb somewhere between the old and new testaments that, speak to her no. in this book Mm-mm. because it's no. later there i will say there are there are some crumbs that you're talking about um and of course not all scholars will agree but um as i've been going through looking at the gospel of thomas there's a couple of places in um galatians and even in the gospel of john that suggest that they have read thomas because it seems they're referring or responding to some specific things in thomas so those are some clues plus there's also I think I just read uh, John Dominic Crossan has a really great book uh, where he talks about there's this thing called the Q document, right? Which is we're assuming that there was a collection of the sayings of Jesus. Thomas is a type of Q document, by the way. Um, but we're assuming there's this a collection of the sayings of Jesus that was we call it the Q document and that the, that um, Mark, <clears throat> Matthew and Luke kind of used um, some of these to compose and construct their gospels. Anyway, so what Dominic Crossan pointed out was that actually, if you add Thomas and lay it alongside those other Gospels, Thomas has more Q references than the other Gospels do, which is another reason to think that, well, maybe they were they were around around the same time. Because Thomas is just a collection of sayings. It's not, um, again, there's no stories or anything. So there, that's, that's interesting. You know, that's a good question. So that you do sometimes see little things like that give you some clues but for most of most of the things we're talking about like judas and mary and others it seems like those came much later and the reason why i'm asking to it, let me ask one more question then i'm gonna say something what about the book of philip who who or the gospel of philip 
who mentions Mary? It, 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 isn't one lost on that? Is that ever mentioned also in the no, Bible? No, it's just anyway. too late. That's actually third, late third century. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just yeah, too late. It's pretty late. I'm just wondering <laughs> um, when we talk about something being first century, second century, third century. Um, I understand that that means that's when we we found it and we dated it as well as we are able to. But just because that's when we found it and then the state that we found it, that doesn't mean that that's the first time right. it ever, it that's ever exactly existed. Right. Yeah. So sometimes people make that mistake that, you know, well, we discovered this and we can date the, we can date the document we found to the third or fourth century. But sometimes there's clues that, well, but it, this was a copy of an earlier. So we think it's even older than that. Um, and yeah. there's, there's things you can do. Yeah. You know, like yeah, a reprint. Exactly. You know how many times we reprint? We're yeah. doing reprints right choir now classes. with choir. With we the do. Books that we're, you know what I'm saying? So somebody might find that book, the version right. that we did 3,000 years from now and be like, well, this is dated in the year 2023. Right. Okay. But it was written like in the year 18, whatever, whatever. So right. I just think about that when I think about these texts, like this is when we found it and this is what we dated, what we found, but are there any crumbs? So, you know, when I say crumbs, I mean, is yeah. there some kind of clue that this existed before? So, yeah. So, so I can speak a little bit to that. So what the like radiocarbon dating does is tell us it, it is at least this early. Right. So if the radiocarbon comes back, like gives us, I forget what the year ranges, but you know, so we know it's from at the, at the very earliest it was written by them. And that's where content and context has to tell us more about the dating. Um, so we look at things that they're referencing. We're looking at themes. We're looking at trends of ideas and their development, which, you know, is this big soupy mix, mix of the Mediterranean world. Um, but we can, these Gnostic ideas that are very highly developed in the Gospel of Mary just do not exist in any other first century writings. So if if it is an early, if, if this is a later copy of something that was written down much earlier, it would be highly surprising. So that's where we start to look at these kind of different layers of ideas and thoughts and help they help us date some of these texts and it's always a work in progress we're always nuancing you know this is a scientific process uh it's a science and art together and so that's how we um kind of come up with new ideas so no crumbs as far as we found but you know we could uncover a rock tomorrow with a right. gnostic text that's dated to the first century you never know you never that's know so exciting about it i mean yeah literally it could be like newsflash we just discovered a first a second mm -hmm. century copy of the gospel of mary like holy shit that's what I thought December was going to uncover, but alas. That's right. <laughs> Got to go back to the <laughs> But alas. <I> still hope. <laughs> I'm just somewhere chilling. I am not on my job hunting antiquities in the Nevada <laughs> desert. Uh, you know, I need to get on it. I mean, I just saw an article the other day about the, uh, something that was found buried under something, buried under something, buried under something uh, in the Aztec culture or something. Oh. It was it was amazing. But I, I think I think about that, you know, uncovering things and when things are dated in it's our first time experiencing a thing, but that thing could have been experienced by multiple generations right. before us. And so that's always interesting. But for those who are interested in experiencing some new things and uncovering some things you have never seen before, you need to go over to theheretichappyhour.com. That's what you need to do. And go to the store and buy you a cup, a pillow, a, what, a t-shirt, or whatever you think you need to engage in concerning the Heretic Happy Hour. So that's where you need to go. We do need to update the website, but that the store is completely up to date. Go shop it. So that's www.heretichappyhour.com. Y'all need to go check it out. And we're not putting any shady ancient manuscripts on there. 
we want all of our all of our <laughs> research is thoroughly documented. Uh, but you can buy pillows and mugs, and we talked about those earlier. And you should you should go buy a pillow and a mug, take a picture of it, and then go to our free f- Facebook group. It's called Heresy After Hours. It's for people at all levels of deconstructing, reconstructing, wherever you are on your journey. You're going to find friends there. Um, so come join us there. You can just type it into the little search bar on Facebook, Heresy After Hours, and then post a picture of your either ancient manuscripts, ethically gotten, or your pillows and mugs. Absolutely. And uh, friends, I just want to let you know, we need your help. Um, our heretichappyhour.com website is uh, is in great need of repair and restoration. Help us restore the temple, rebuild the temple of heretichappyhour.com. Uh, you can go to the, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash heretichappyhour, become a supporter of this podcast, and we'll, you'll get all kinds of cool bonus goodies stuff in the process. You'll also get access to our uh, private and exclusive Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, and you'll be uh, contributing to a really wonderful cause. If you already support us, we love you, appreciate you, and thank you so much. Your support means so much to us. Thank you. You're going to heaven. Yes, that's right. You're As all opposed to, to heaven, hell. But heaven. Straight. Straight. Uh, I heard heaven. the church can go to hell, though. Straight. The church can go to hell. Yeah. It's, it's on the way. With gasoline draw. And lastly, um, well, gasoline. huge shout out again to Shonda. Give all the, um, give yes. your Give your yes. good thoughts and good juju and all that we stuff. We love you, Shonda. Shonda and thoughts and prayers, Shonda. She'll appreciate that. Oh, yes. Christ. Thoughts and um, prayers. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> well, with that, rate and re- thoughts and prayers. Rate and review this show. That's how people find out about it. That's how people like you discover this show. If you rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen, that would help us out bigly. We would really, really appreciate it. And we will see y'all in two weeks. That's right. That's our final episode in the series. Why bother with the babble? It's going to be a short one. It'll be a short one, like probably 10 minutes. Well, no. Are you kidding? I'm giving a dissertation on it. All right. It's going to be a two and a half hour long form podcast. (laughs) I'm just going to open my dissertation and read it. All right.